good morning, everyone. Thank you for all coming. Three poets, uh, Wilfred Gibson, who wrote quite extensively when he was living in Dimmock just down the road, Ivor Gurney, of course, connected to Gloucestershire, and Jean, living in uh, Shropshire, but has fingers in many counties. The theme is basically landscape, but we tend to drift a little bit off course from time to time into sort of interesting areas where the poet sort of commented interestingly on the state of, state of the world. Our readers today, Marilyn and Jake and Jean, and also at the piano, providing interlude or linkage between groups of poems is Jack Bloomer from John Maysfield High School. We're very privileged to have him here today. So straight away, let's start off with uh, Marilyn, who takes on the, the tram car by Wilfred Gibson. Thank you. Humming and creaking, the car down the street lumbered and lurched through thunderous gloam, bearing us spent and dumb with the heat from office and counter and factory home. Sallow-faced clerks, genteel in black, girls from the laundries draggled and dank, ruddy-faced labourers slouching slack, a broken actor guzzled and lank, a mother with querulous babe on her lap, a schoolboy whistling under his breath, an old man crouched in a dreamless nap, a widow with eyes on the eyes of death. A priest, a sailor with deep sea gaze, a soldier in scarlet with waxed moustache, a drunken trollop in velvet and lace, all silent in that tense dusk. When a flash of lightning shivered the sultry gloom, with shattering brattle the whole sky fell about us and wrapped to a dazzling doom, we glided on in a timeless spell. Unscathed through deluge and flying fire, in a magical chariot of streaming glass, cut off from our kind and the world's desire, made one by the awe that had come to pass. Mist on Meadows. Mist lies heavy on English meadows, as ever in Ypres. But the friendliness here is greater in full field and hedge shadows, and there is less menace and no dreadfulness as when the very lights went up to show the land stark, dreadful, green, light bearing the ruined trees, stakes, pools, lostness better hidden, dreadful in dark, and not ever reminding of these other fields where tall dock and clover is, and that sweet grass yields for that poisoned, where the cattle hoof makes mark and the river drifts slowly along the leaves. How Time in Fields is about how landscape contains all times layered. And the book is arranged broadly around the seasons. And I made use of the Old English words for months. So I'm going to start you with Almanac 1, which um, begins in this month, in July. Maid Monath. The meadow month 
All hayseed and diesel, us, cross-legged on the rocking stack of bales. Weed monath. In the weed month, kneeling, back bent, we ease out creeping buttercup. Behind us, our dusted toes. Haligmonath, the holy month, when the weeks turned green and full of path. Kitty wake with blistering heels and bones that ache, marching through pitchy ways and blind. The miry track is hard to make, yet ever hovering in my mind. Above red crags, a kitty wake hangs motionless against the wind. Grey winged, white breasted, and black eyed against red crags of porphyry, that pillar from a sapphire tide, a sapphire sky. Indifferently, the raw lad limping at my side blasphemes his boots, the world and me. Still, keen, unwavering and alert, within my aching mind, the bright bird hovers and the dirt of bottomless black ways and blind, and all the hundred things that hurt, past healing, seem to drop behind. Near the Mond. Lying flat on my belly, shivering in clutch frost, there was time to watch the stars we had dug in. Looking eastward over the low ridge, March scurried its blast at our senses. No use either dying or struggling. Low woods to left, Cotswold spinneys, if ever, showed through snow flurries and the clearer star weather. And nothing but chill and wonder lived in mind. Nothing but loathing and fine beauty and wet clothing. Here were thoughts. Cold smothering and fire desiring. A day to follow like this. Or in digging or wiring. Worry in snow flurry and lying flat. Flesh the earth loathing. I was the forward sentry and would be relieved in a quarter or so. But nothing much better than to crouch low in scraped holes and to have frozen and rocky couch to be my desperate home. Thoughts clutched at and heart grieved. Was I ever there? A lit warm room and bach to search out sacred meaning and to find no luck and to take love as believed.
Shropshire poem. How time is in fields. Back of Wright's yard, I climbed the first gate into Springwell. Cows cudded and sunned by a veteran ash. Grasshoppers churred in little rye croft. I turned back from a track choked with thistles and sheep dung. Little lane piece was sprung with oaks. I wound my way on a narrow path through high hogweed and stinging nettles. In Rycroft copy, a mole turned mortal, upside to heaven. Above him, brown ringlets wavered the clover. A whispering ash at broomy Rycroft, the ragloth was rising from cover. Blue flies moved slowly and thickly in shade. Old path swayed from tree to tree. I crossed a dark July slow stream. My way was edged with burdock and barley. A scatter of feverfew, pearly in the rough. Wenlock edge stepping by on my right. Long lip after lip dropping dim in the sun. The ragloth ran closer, slope-shouldered and done. Manes of elderflower flowered in the hedge. At the third ford, rabbit bones, a trim of birds, a trembling shade like water. I climbed and had to stop for breath. Dried mud, hoof prints. I climbed again. The pigments of oak leaves were breaking down in dust. At the top, a gate where a great coppice ash marked an edge. Now, a long green ride. Ledges of the mind slept in folds at my back. Long purple foxgloves tilted among the hazels. At eye's rim, the gyre stone winked from Hope Bowdler. Volcanic watcher, path marker, ancient fist. I walked on the lie of the old track from Chelmick, still tagged with winter carded wool. In the squatter village, the hedge lines grew loose. A sagging gate, a wheeled hen house, my path lost in crops. A pigeon sloped through a wood. Downhill, with barley hissing on my jeans. The road at last, tire tracked by heat. In the verge, a mullen leaned and meadow sweet. Gunshot, once, twice. Smell of dung and dead stock, crow. By Roger's Ruff, a one-eyed cottage under renovation. Everywhere, the local ground makes shift for the duration. Anthony Earnshaw. We found him, sleeping in the drifted snow, beside his buried but still breathing ewes. 
Tis rarely granted any man to know and find unsought the death that he would choose. Yet he, who'd always laboured among sheep since he could walk, and who had often said that death should find him working, stumbled dead, succouring his flock, and by them fell asleep. Spare sinewy body with brown knotted hands, lean weathered face and eyes that burn so clear, from gazing ever through the winds that blow ever wide grassy spaces, one who stands beside you, quiet on your hurdle beer, envies your hard-earned death amid the snow. Daily Old Tale. If one's heart is broken 20 times a day, what easier thing than to fling the bits away? But still one gathers <laughs> fragments and looks for wire, or patches it up like some old bicycle tyre. Bicycle tyres fare hardly on roads, but the heart has an easier time than rubber. They sheathe the cart with iron, so lumbering and slow. My mind must be made to bother the heart and to teach things and learn it its trade. This next poem comes of mine comes from uh, the south of Scotland, from the South Rims. And it's a story and it involves um, a cart and its tread and some steep hills, and it's based on a photograph I found of a man called Jacob McCulloch, who was in the late 19th century living in the South Rins. It's the most extreme southwest corner of Scotland. And um, his trade was, was the sale of um, plates and bowls, which were carried in the cart. And he was famously, um, he had an accident. This is Jacob McCulloch's Holy Barrow. Having cycled Jacob's hills across the narrow spine of this peninsula, I do wonder which was the one where his barrow, laden with cheap stamped plates and bowls, a flutter with his holy tracts and pamphlets, not to say further burdened by Jacob himself, the one where his barrow gathered too much pace for the bend on that breathless winter runnel drop its front wheel rattling, waggling, all steering, bounding out from under his big hands, his eyes above those good cheekbones stretched wide at his moment of crash, and the crack and split of wooden spokes, and then the sound ongoing, printing onto air of breaking China, which, they say, you could pick from that ditch for years, long after Jacob had gathered up his crumpled tracts and gone to God. Fire one. 
Across the Cleveland countryside, the train panted and jolted through the lurid light of monstrous slag heaps in the leaping light of belching furnishes, furnaces. The driving rain lacing the glass with gold in that red glare that momentarily revealed the cinderous land of blasted fields that stretched on either hand with livid waters gleaming here and there. By hovels of men who labour till they die, with iron and the fire that never sleeps, we plunged in pitchy night among huge heaps. Then once again, that red glare lit the sky. And high above the highest hill of slag, I saw Prometheus hanging from his crag. The Old Walnut. <clears throat> the old walnut the children have loved so long must come down. The squire needs a fine furniture, having things of honour, a chest and other, must hold music, pictures of the land, for the land made, and after death, the tree may be more honoured yet than in greatness there by the lawn showing the red brick wall. But in this November yet there is none to take truly its place. Nuts but no monarch show, undoubted one of fields domain. His sons and daughters will grieve not after a little, but follow duty, and the children will climb then as honouring and friendly. True, the sweet music drawn out of the chest will sound there, and hospitality come. Recipe from a crofter. This is Bessie Wallow Yao a sheep's cheese from the treeless region, which will last you through the end of winter and provision the hungry gap. Take a gallon of four-day-old milk and sieve through muslin in a cold dairy. It's bad luck to turn away strangers while the cheese is dripping into stoneware. On the fifth day, turn out the cheese and wrap in nettle leaves. Bury the truckle for six weeks. Choose your receptacle cautiously. By April, the rats are hungry. Best has been a tin trunk with luggage tags from Warsaw, Dublin and Guernica. The receptacle should be dug shallowly into stony ground in rain. Keep account of the worms. It may be they're recovering. Peel off only enough leaves to cut the cheese at any one time. Eat sparingly. Spring may be late. The plate layer. 
tapping the rails as he went by and driving the slack wedges tight. He walked towards the morning sky between two golden lines of light that dwindled slowly into one sheer golden rail that ran right on over the fells into the sun. And dazzling in his eyes it shone, that golden track, as left and right he swung his clinking hammer. Aye, it was dazzling after that long night in Hindfeld Tunnel, working by a smoky flare and making good the track the rains had torn. Clink, clink on the sound metal, on the wood a duller thwack. It made him blink, that running gold. T'was sixteen hours since he'd left home. His garden smelt so fragrant with the heavy showers when he left home. And now he felt that it would smell more fresh and sweet after the tunnel's reek and fume of damp, warm cinders. T'was a treat to come upon the scent and bloom that topped the cutting by the wood after the cinders on the track the cinders and tarred sleepers. Good to lift your eyes from gritty black to that fresh blaze of green and red. And she'd be waiting by the fence and with the baby. Straight to bed he'd make if he had any sense. Cotswold Ways. <clears throat> One comes across the strangest things in walks. Fragments of abbey tithe barns fixed in modern. And Dutch sort houses where the water balks weird up and brick kilns broken among fern. Old troughs, great stone cisterns, bishops might have blessed ceremonious, ceremonially and worthy mounting stones. Black timber in red brick, queerly placed where Stone Hill was looked for, and a manor's bones spied in the frame of some wisteriaed house. And millfalls and sedgepools and Saxon faces, streamed sources appeared, happened upon in unlikely places. And Roman-looking hills of small degree and the surprise of dignity of poplars at a road end, or the white Cotswold scars, or sheets spread white against the hazel trees. Strange, the large difference of up Cotswold ways. Birdlip climbs bold and treeless to a bend, portway to dim wood lengths without end, and Crickly goes to cliffs and the crown of days. My next poem is um, based on a Cotswold story. Um, it's really not very far at all to walk from Yulee to Owlpen. And there are two voices in this poem. A traveller from Yulee to Owlpen inquires of landlord John Ferriby. Home's a walk in the dark with half a moon 
tell me the way. Why, you must go along the green and down the hill by Fiery Lane until you come to Cuckoo Brook. Home is somewhere back of me. What is it? I am trying to remember. Sir, a little further on you will pass the nep, after which you will go by Dragon's Hole. Home is the same story we all tell. What is it? I am trying to forget. Indeed, you go next through Potlid Green, and after that comes Marling's End. Home is the slow abrasion of a boot and a stout step. Oh, sir, that good soul, in the end, will bring you down to Owlpen. Pig iron. The crowbars loose the plug of clay, and bursting from the furnace's side, the spouting molten metal gushed in a tumultuous seething tide that surged into the winter night with an exultant white hot flare and blinded heaven and all its stars and the cold moon in one fierce glare till in the mould of channelled sand it cooled to red then dull and slow it crawled in grey congealing stream that gradually ceased to flow when clinking crowbars snapped the chilled and brittle metal short and soon in stark cold pigs the iron lay rigid beneath the icy moon. And so, the passionate seething tide of youth, the fury and the fire that burned up heaven and earth in one exultant outburst of desire, grows dull and sluggish. And too soon shall my heart's metal, dead and cold, Await the crowbar's snapping stroke, indifferent in its channeled mould. The Retreat After three weeks of freezing and thawing over, against shones, mud dreadful with water cover of gumboots in the low places, the ice of nights. They marched us out, sore-footed, to far billets. Straw and warm tea, more bread, letters more, where for a week we recovered, and now less sore our feet were. Beer there was, a little bread, wine, but not the strength they asked of making roads fine. With weak bodies, sore feet and hungry bellies, warmth there was, and sleep. The barn a palace. When suddenly the news came, 
Fritz had retreated. What? From Schoen's wired a yard deep where a shot greeted any patrol at midnight moving strict ways. None else to takes. It was a most strict, terrible maze. It was true. We marched three days to our old place, passed through a hedge of no man's land and saw far other lines, pillboxes, headquarters and further. Artillery-wide positions, heads of divisions passed, came to Amy Court, found billets. It was but the fractions of farms. But wood in plenty and water pure, fire warm, billets warm, while the north wind sheer tore a space round corners of our one small room. There was a mass book, great plain song in the gloom of the broken church, with German journals and such. I found a score of postcards in a billet, to catch all of them and to be sorry afterwards. But first, finding the den and souvenirs as rewards. After that, onwards slowly, till roads we had mended, weak, hungry, feeling the heart labour bended, to come to the last rise, see some azure of blaze, soft march, it was warm of sun, and go onwards across the pioneer mending of the arch broken by planking laid across, rattling but standing strain, transport clanking artillery. We passed Y and another huge mind-destroyed place, terribly huge, and on till Colain Court, Valley of Grace. In a fair field at white-leaved oak, the path was a thread through fields, or the hills galloped in wild garlic. I had edged between white butterflies to get here, carrying lunch and waterproofs. I saw that the weight of long dead feet had made this track and bellied it and smoothed its skin. I was there below birds that sang in rings. Then the whole wood boomed under a plain. A dog walker walked, politely smiling by. And first a church bell called, and then a lamb. Out of a green shade slopped the wash of warm, shallow seas and a treasure of corals and crinoids. But now I idled on fired white clays, surprised when a trumpet sounded in a distant garden. It fanned the black flies up to the contrails, so I sat down in the wrinkled field and counted all those dandelion globes.
the conscript. Indifferent, flippant, earnest, but all bored. The doctors sit in the glare of electric light, watching the endless stream of naked white bodies of men, for whom their hasty award means life or death maybe, or the living death of mangled limbs, blind eyes or a darkened brain. And the chairman, as his monocle falls again, pronounces each doom with easy, indifferent breath. Then, suddenly, I shudder as I see a young man standing before them wearily, cadaverous as one already dead. But still they stare untroubled as he stands with arms outstretched and drooping thorn-crowned head the nail marks glowing in his feet and hands. Afterglow. Out of the smoke and dust of the little room, with tea talk loud and laughter of happy boys, I passed into the dark. Suddenly, the noise ceased with a shock, left me alone in the gloom to wonder at the miracle hanging high, tangled in twigs, the silver crescent clear. Time passed from mind. Time died, and then we were once more at home together, you and I. The elms with arms of love wrapped us in shade who watched the ecstatic west with one desire. One soul unwrapped and still another fire consumed us and our joy yet greater made that Bach should sing to us, mix us in one the joy of firelight and the sunken sun. Um, this poem refers to my great-grandfather, who was born in the Shetland Islands and ran away to sea when he was 13. Becoming variable. Attend to the gulls and forecasts heard in bed. Reassurance that we're safe from winter seas. Where wrecks roll under the sea lanes, tilting in the oily wash of ferries. Or fathoms down, where whales slip freely through the Hebrides. You must have been there in the flap and crack of canvas that Malin stitched for you in beads of ice, and worked a slanting dog watch while the gales whipped north at Sierra white at nightfall, and learned coordinates from the sight of black ceramic water shattering on Rockall. I imagine you counting between Fair Isle and Forties a flock of shipwrecks when you slept. Long after you've gone, I think of the course of your keel 
on its barred silver passage to the mackerel north or on the coal road from Lerwick to Shields. The money, and this is the, the first section of a much longer poem. They found her cold upon the bed. The cause of death, the doctor said, was nothing save a lack of bread. Her clothes were but a sorry rag that barely hid the nakedness of her poor body's piteous wreck. Yet when they stripped her of her dress, they found she was not penniless. For in a little silken bag, tied with red ribbon round her neck, was four pounds seventeen and five. It seems a strange and shameful thing that she should starve herself to death, while she'd the means to keep alive. Why, such a sum would keep the breath within her body till she'd found a livelihood. And it would bring... But there is very little doubt... She'd set her heart upon a grand and foolish funeral for the <coughs> pride of fo poor folk who can understand. And so, because she was too proud to meet death penniless, she died. And talking, talking, they trooped out. And as they went, I turned about to look upon her in her shroud and saw again the quiet face that filled with light that shameful place. Touched with the tender youthful grace, death brings the broken and outworn to comfort kind hearts left to mourn. And as I stood, the sum they found rang with a queer familiar ring of some uncouth uncanny sound Heard in dark ages underground, and four pounds seventeen and five. Through all my body it seemed to sing, without recalling anything, to help me strive as I might strive. But as I stumbled down the stairs into the alley's gloom and stench, a whiff of burning oil that took me unawares, and I knew all there was to tell. And though the rain in torrents fell, I walked on heedless through the drench. The songs I had. The songs I had are withered or vanished clean. Yet there are bright cracks where I have been. And there grow flowers for others' delight. Think well, O singer, soon comes night. This is the last poem. We're going to take you in the almanacs from winter into spring. Wolf Manath. 
Wolf month comes padding the cold ash coppice. It's dark. There's a scent of worm casts and stars. Salmonath, the mud month, slants a crow through bare branches, glossy eye to the main chance. Hrethmanath, Hrethas month, one day she's sleet stung, weeping back to the wall. The next, her bright hair snags on the buds. Thank you.